church that is again in need for guidance. It's Second Corinthians. Today we're looking at chapter 1, of course, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask as we hear your word read, and as we continue to hear your word, by we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move us in directions as you desire that you will transform our hearts if they need to be transformed from death to life, if not yet done. For those of us who have tasted of the work of the Holy Spirit and given us regeneration, new birth, new life, Father, we pray that the continual work of transformation and sanctification will be done in us. We pray, Father, that you would allow us to feel not only the heart of Paul towards this church in Corinth, but, Lord, that we would feel and sense your love for us in this church here in Hope. We pray, Lord, that again, as always, you would be glorified as being a time set apart and sanctified for your glory, we pray that the reading and the central work of the word of God, your word in the life of the church would be felt not only with words as Paul writes, but also with power. And it is not upon the power of my voice, but it is the power of your voice and the power of your love and the work of your spirit within us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in, your, in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant brothers and sisters of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, 
so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 18. As we always do, as needed to be done on every new series, there needs to be some preliminary work done and to get a context of who we, where we are at. We see in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, after this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a, new, a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. Now that was taken place around 49 AD. And because he was of the same tra trade, he stayed with them and worked for, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, which is northern Greece, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And, and, there, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a, worship, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Christians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. In verse 11 it says, There he stayed for a year and a half, a year and six months, teaching the word of God um, uh, among them. And then we see in verse 18, After this, uh, Paul stayed many days longer, and then, he, then took leave of his brothers, set sail for uh, Syria with Priscilla and Aquila. And then it says in verse 19, He came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And this was uh, 52 A.D. And then we see in uh, verse, chapter 19, it went, it, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland uh, country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into, into, in, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And he, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one who has come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And again, to be aware of this is the the um, outline of the pre of the prologue that is given in the book of Acts that is telling us now that as Paul is now going to the Gentiles, they always go back to the day of Pentecost, showing that the same Holy Spirit that gave these signs gifts in Pentecost is not a geographical Holy Spirit, but is the Holy Spirit of all God's people. So it is not every time that you become a Christian that you have to speak in tongues. It is the fact that now this Holy Spirit 
that was anointing the people on the day of Pentecost is now the same Holy Spirit, just to verify that this is the work of the same Holy Spirit. That's why this is done. Paul says, you will now be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, to Samaria, and all the parts of the world. So in every one of these places, you will see this, this miracle taking place to validate that it's the same Holy Spirit who did his work in Pentecost. Because there were about 12 men. And then he entered the synagogue for three months. And then we see in verse 10, he continued for two and a half years, two more years. So he was there in Ephesus for about uh, two and a half years. What we see is this is the beginning. This is the work of Paul's ministry. As we see in his missionary journey, he goes to Corinth the first time and meets these people from Corinth. And begins a church. What we read is that in the first Corinthians is that there were some problems, as you and I know. Now, Corinth was a place of wealth and a great, a great city, meaning that there were lots of wonderful things, lots of important things taking place there when it comes to trade and the arts and everything. Some people estimate that there were three quarters of a million people in Corinth, which is a lot of people. Um, and... Uh, when we read Paul's letter, we see that Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that is come to known to be Corinthianized, which means that it, that's, not a very, that's not a very flattering term. Of all the stuff as you and I read in the book of, of 1 Corinthians, we see there was a lot of sin going on. There was a lot of disunity. Paul writes to the 1 Corinthians. He writes the first letter to the Corinthians because he wants this unity to come because they were Everybody was doing their own thing. They felt the Holy Spirit was with them. So he came to me, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't care who you follow, or I follow Paul, or I follow this one. And I, there was so much disjointed of a church that the Holy Spirit who comes to unify us was not unifying anybody. In fact, it wasn't the Holy Spirit's fault. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit and the people's understanding of it that was bringing disunity. And you and I know that that happens in churches. So Paul writes his first letter because he wants unity. He is saying, you need to understand that you are united in Christ. And he goes through and gives specific relationships. Don't be yoked, unequally yoked. You know, he talks about all kinds of different subjects. He was saying that, you know, God is the, the Holy Spirit is the giver of these gifts. God is not confused. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of chaos. So why are you acting like you're chaotic? Why do you look like you don't even belong to God at all? And you're doing things and you're allowing things. You're allowing sin to take place in the church that the pagans, unbelievers, are, are just amazed that you allow this kind of lifestyle to go on. You allow this sin to take place in the church. It was a tough letter. Now Paul writes 2 Corinthians. Now, just to give you an understanding... What we have as 2 Corinthians may really be Paul's fourth letter. So turn with me, I'll just give you some sort of understanding of how we get to this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice in the, where he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter. Okay? There was a letter that we don't have, 
that we don't need to find because we, aren't, we aren't, don't feel that we don't have God's word and we're missing something. Though people are saying, oh, we're looking for the miss letters and the, miss word, the lost words of Jesus. There's books out there finding the lost word of Jesus. And if we understand the, the, the doctrine of scripture, we have everything we, we need that God wants us to have. He's superintended by the Holy Spirit, the very word of God. Everything that God wants us to have is in our midst right here. Okay, So we see that Paul's first letter, we don't, know what it, we don't know what it all contained, but he did say that, I wrote to you, do not associate with sexually immoral people, and he goes on and explains that. So we see that there was a letter. Okay. Then we, turn, then we have the second letter, which is 1 Corinthians. We have a letter before 1 Corinthians, and now we have 1 Corinthians, so that makes two letters. Okay. So then we go into uh, 2 Corinthians, and we go to chapter 2, and then his, this is where he gets into, you can see Paul's heart changing in a sense toward what this letter was written, and I just want to kind of give you an understanding first of how many letters there were, and then understand you why Paul wrote this letter. Notice, for I made up my mind not to take another painful visit, okay? Paul's had two visits, the first one and a painful visit, which we'll talk about. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've appointed? I wrote as I did. So that's number three. Okay, so we have a letter that we don't have, which is 1 Corinthians. We have the 1 Corinthians, which is really the second letter. And now we have a third letter that we don't know what it contained, but we have a fourth letter, which is 2 Corinthians. Kabish? Everybody understand that we have four? So we have four letters. So what we're looking at is not really 2 Corinthians, but if you're looking at Paul's writings, 4th Corinthians. But, it's, but from a canonical perspective and from a word of God's perspective, we don't have one and we don't have two, but we have God's one and God's two. Okay? I want everybody to see that because it makes a difference. We're going to read this, and going to read this and, and talk about this and going to say, what do you mean? How is he writing if he's wrote? You know, how did, how did he do something in the past tenses if we're reading this letter now? What he writes is that he understands, he writes 1 Corinthians. He writes the first letter because there's stuff going on. He writes a second letter, which is very strong. He comes with a visit because he hears that things are not good at all. He, hear, he hears that things are, what's happening is that if we go to uh, chapter 11, I'll pick out these high points here for you so you get an idea of why Paul's doing this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we look at chap, verse 13, for he says here, he says, um, uh, let's start from chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish you could bear with me in a little foolishness. Uh, do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaim, and if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Meaning that there are people, as he says in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, so it is no surprise that these men are called Satan's servants. So we see that what's happening is that now there's not disunity within the church. There's disunity between Paul and the church. Paul is writing this letter, 2 Corinthians, that we have, 2 Corinthians, because these super apostles are coming and have come to the church in Corinth, and which he says to the church in Achaia, which we will read in the, in the introduction, meaning that that whole province of Achaia with Corinth and all the other churches that are there, Paul is very concerned that these churches are going to be affected. Now everybody kind of kind of uh, romanticizes house churches, but these house churches were not under anybody's authority, and so they did not have, as we like in Presbyterianism, co connectionalism. We, we love connectionalism. That's why I left congregationalism and became a Presbyterian, because I saw the great beauty in the biblical understanding of connectionalism is that people are connected and that overseers not only oversee their church, but are called by God to join other overseers to watch out for the body of Christ, which I think is beautiful. It's wonderful. Paul is concerned that this is going to spread. These super apostles, these false teachers have come in and now are putting a wedge in between Paul and the church. Why? Because Paul, as we will read, Paul's problem is that he is suffering. Paul's problem, as we will read, is that Paul is kind of a haggardly looking guy. He's got bony legs and uh, he's not, he's got, a, he's kind of a really ugly looking man and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any power which is contrary to what was going on of people who called themselves teachers, people who were followers of God or called by God and to be apostles, false apostles. That's why Paul's going to appeal to his, role, his office of being an apostle. He is saying that, they're saying that, look at him. Look at him. He, he's, in, he's suffering. He doesn't look good. He doesn't have a whole lot of power. He's not a really good speaker. How can this man be anointed by God to be an apostle if he looks and his life looks like this? Because they were looking at the pow and the wow, if you've heard me say. They were looking for these orators, these people who were great debaters and people who sounded good and people who entertained people, people who could draw crowds. People who were doing these signs and wonders and people who are doing and proclaiming spectacular things because they were teaching people that this is what a man of God, apostle of God, an emissary of God would do if he was really called by God. Not look like Paul. Not act like Paul. Not this despicable, sad life like Paul. So he, these people now are saying, this guy can't be an apostle. So what they're doing, they're, they are now questioning Paul's role, Paul's position. So Paul goes and visits them with that painful visits and reads in the right act. Along with a letter that we read is a painful letter, sorrowful letter. 
So he sends Titus off to go with this letter and go find out what's going on. And he says, I'm going to go to, well, we can turn, we'll, we'll turn there. And he says, um, verse uh, 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter tw uh, 2. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me from the, in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. He, was, he said to Titus, go, let me know what's going on, and come back and meet me in, in Macedonia. He got there and there was no Titus. Well, did Titus make it? Did they kill Titus? What did they do to Titus? Where is Titus? So he didn't go, he didn't come, he waited. He felt that he had an open door of a ministry someplace else, but he was so concerned about this church, the Corinthian church, that he wanted to find out, and he loved Titus, so he wanted to find out what was going on. And then he says, I did not find my brother there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always lead us in the triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. He says he comes back with this great news, as he did, um, that, that things, they, they took Paul's word. They read that painful, sorrowful letter. They took Paul's word, because Paul didn't know what was going to happen, and they changed. A majority of the Corinthians went, and now they have pledged their uh, understanding to who Paul is. They now believe that Paul is an emissary who speaks for God. Now, Revelation came from the apostles, so it was very important that Paul was in that position. As you heard me say many times in the past, we don't have any new apostles. There are no apostles. I'm an apostle, and there are people who are in roles who are in this, in this position as a pastor or people who are in leadership because we, have the, 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 we do the function, we do the... Uh, the things that a, a, an apostle would do, but we do not hold the official position of an apostle because there are only those that God appointed, and after that, they're gone. That, that, that era of the apostles died with John. That's why Paul was the 13th apostle, and he says, I'm abnormally born. You know, I saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. You know, I, I, I didn't come with the same route that you guys did. That's why everybody had, after a while, they didn't believe this guy, Paul. This guy who kills Christians, who burns down churches, who stones them. This, pro, this persecutor of the church. And they all, they went and they found out that Paul really was the real deal. And that's why they accepted Paul's work as an apostle and becomes this prominent figure in the church in, in, in the kingdom of God of building these churches. That's why he goes on these journeys to start these churches. And as you can see, Paul's, Paul's uh, um, strategy was where? Go to the synagogue and talk. Go to the synagogue and reason. Because who has the, the scriptures? The people in the synagogues. Who have the scriptures? The Old Testament. And what does Paul say? And what does Jesus say? They talk about me. So he goes back. He goes back to the Old Testament and reasons with them. So we see this, we see this first letter, the second le the sorrowful letter, the first visit, the church grows. The second visit was a very sorrowful, painful visit. But yet what's still going on, which is by God's grace, the majority of the people have now changed their mind and are now faithful to the teaching and support Paul as an apostle. But these remnant the minority of these super apostles these false teachers and some of them are still there 
in their midst, there's still a remnant of them who are raising havoc and are still being a device and a wedge. So this is why Paul is writing this letter to them, because he loves them. He says, you're going to read this. He says, if I come back one more time, heads are going to roll, as the queen and Alice in Wonderland says. Heads are going to roll, he says. Wait, don't wait, don't let the apostle get home. And this is what he says, because judgment is coming. If I don't see obedience, that's why he's writing this letter, because he loves these people, and he wants to give them another opportunity to change, for God to work, not him, but for the Holy Spirit to work in your life, so that none would perish, but that they would come to understand who he is, and then understand because of Christ, because by denying Paul, you deny Christ, because Paul was an apostle of Christ by the will of God. You see that language and we're going to hear it here. It was, they weren't the emissaries of Christ. He was not an official delegate from Christ. I mean, the, uh, the super apostles, only Paul. So when you deny Paul's function and Paul's position and role, you denied Christ himself. Because when you denied the emissary from the king far away, came in your midst, and you dissed him, you dissed that king. And so that's what he was telling him. Listen. Listen, he says, you're denying Christ. You're denying your faith. You are reprobates if you don't listen to me and change. This is why he writes 2 Corinthians. Okay? You have to understand this because if you don't, you're going to wonder what he's talking about. So you have to have this, this flavor. Let me tell you a little bit about the society, the Greco-Roman period of time. What was the norm? What was the expectations? What was the, the uh, wavelength and the, and the atmosphere like during this time? Pulling it out of one of my reference works. It says this. Paul's day, Greco-Roman society stressed a rugged individualism that valued self-sufficiency. Second, wealth as a key to status within society. Third, a self-display of one's accomplishments and possessions in order to win the praise of others. Fourth, a competition for honor that viewed boasting as a natural corollary. And five, a pride in one's neighborhood as a reflection of one's social standing. Does that sound familiar? In addition, since one-third of urban populations in Paul's day was indigent or slaves, only 1% belonged to the aristocracy. You ever hear about the 1%? Belonged to the aristocracy by birth, the large middle class could move up within the social scale primarily through acquiring wealth. Hence, the drive for upward social mobility by advancing economically became the obsession of the middle class. Duh. It could even be said that it was worshiping wealth. For with wealth came the other significant markers of social advancement, such as reputation, occupation, neighborhood, education, religious status, political involvement, and athletic achievement. In short, the culture was openly materialistic in, quite, in, in its 
quest for praise and esteem. And he says in his commentary, Unfortunately, in reading such a description, we are not sure whether we are hearing about the life in Corinth in the first century or we are hearing about life in our Western world and even within most middle class and even in evangelical churches. That's why it's important for us to read 2 Corinthians. What was the problem? These super saints, these, not super saints, these false apostles, were saying that it was nothing that you could not get persecuted for your faith, but that you would not get sick, that you were, you were, um, uh, you would not, let's say, I'm thinking here, um, you would not have weaknesses in your life. You would not have suffer any kind of economic or financial stress because of who you are with the Lord. Sound like a lot of Christian books out there? A lot of churches and pulpits today? The Big Hair Station? Where all these Christians are standing up and all these saints are standing up and you see people being slain in the spirit and wowed and, and they're looking at all of their possessions and looking at all their position and looking at all their materialism and telling people that this is because you are a child of God, this is what you can expect. If you read 2 Corinthians, there's no room for that gospel. And I, I'm sorry I even tarnished the word gospel because it's not. It's not good news. That's bad news. So, Paul begins this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, notice he is now saying who has given him his marching orders. Who does he belong to? He said, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, now he brings Timothy involved, because Timothy, Timothy is a co-worker, not an apostle, but a co-worker, and we're going to see that the co-workers are not equal to the apostles, but their ministry is as powerful because of the fact that though they are not giving revelation and they're not doing signs and wonders, they are still doing the work that is supporting the apostle. That's why he gives Timothy, and you say, hey Timothy, you're young. Don't let them beat you up because you're young. You're with me. You understand. You know the truth. And that's why we hear the people who are in ministry read First and Second Timothy and Titus to understand what our role is. It's the role of the pastoral letters. And Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now notice he's writing to Corinth, but he understands that this letter is circulated. And if it gets circulated, it's going to go to the entire province. And you notice, with all the problems, you don't think he's going to say, well, I'm dusting this sand off of, my, off of my shoes and my sandals. I'm getting out of this place. These Corinthians. Now, you know, we never heard of Corinth, have we really? Unless it was for Ricardo Maltabam and the Corinthian leather that sold Cordobas years ago. That's the only Cor Corinth I ever heard. And so we see here that he says, I'm concerned, this, this letter's going out to the saints. After all the mess that 1 Corinthians writes to, and all the stuff that's going on there now, he still calls them saints. Why? Because they're not holy saints. In your mindset, in my mindset, my mindset was worse because of my background, that saints were different kinds of people. 
But we are all saints. Why? Not because you and I are holy, but because what does it mean, holy ones mean, means sanctified ones. And what does sanctified mean? Remember we looked at 1 Peter, and it says not only holy, but it says sanctify Christ in your hearts. That means separate Christ. Keep Christ different. Give him a special place. So when he talks about saints, saints are not only just holy, we're supposed to be holy, but it has nothing to do about them holier than anyone else. Their, their being saints is because God has taken them and set them apart. He took the instruments in the tabernacle and took out this bowl and this candle and this uh, whatever, this uh, sacrifice, and sanctified it. Kept it as a sacred object. That's who we are. We've been set apart from the world, which is different from the Pharisees, because the Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separated ones. So who was doing the separating there? The Pharisees were doing the separating. Who has set us apart? Someone outside of ourselves. We have been set apart. We didn't set apart ourselves. You see the difference. We're very different than the Pharisees. They're separated. They separated themselves because they thought they were something. We're set apart because we are nothing until the Lord comes in our life and then gives us eternal life and makes us his possession. Imagine that. So, he says, grace to you and peace, shalom from God. And notice now we hear John chapter uh, 20 come in. Remember when Jesus was talking to Mary and he says, go tell, go tell the other Brothers and sisters, go tell them that now I am going to my God and your God and my Father and your Father. Now notice Paul makes that a big deal here. He makes that different because that is, for a Jew, you didn't call God your Father. You didn't have that relationship. That's why they wanted to stone Jesus, as we saw so many times in the book of John. So we see here that, Jesus, that Paul goes right back to the place of who Jesus is, that he is the the that he is the God, uh, the, he is the God and Father, excuse me, that God our Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has that great intimate relationship of the second, the second Son of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, God's own Son. We have that relationship now with him because of being in Christ. And so he goes off now after that introduction, which most of these letters started like, and he goes in chapter, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make that clear who we are. I want to make that clear that you understand that you and I have this relationship. We are saints because of what Jesus did and because Jesus did what he did and because of the resurrection we now can call God our Father. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. All comfort. Every kind of comfort. He's talking about here. And the only way God can be the God of all comfort is if he is a God who does not change. If he changes, we don't know, is he up to the deal or not to comfort us? But you remember when we looked at Jonah and he says, God, remember I talked about open theology and then I talked about process theology where God's in process and openness means that, well, there are some things that we are secured in. We understand that they're sureties, but there are some things outside of God's providence that he's just kind of waiting and see what's going to happen. 
If God was that way, how could Paul ever write that God is a God of all comfort if he couldn't take care of everything and knew everything that was coming? So he's not a God in process. He is not a God who's open to these providential uh, situations that pop up. He is a God who is all for everything. Who comforts us in all of our affliction. Now notice, you're going to hear words here in this little uh, paragraph, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. How many times the word comfort is used? How many times the word of affliction? Comfort is used here more than anywhere else in Paul's writings and in the Bible in a little area. In these verses, ten times the word comfort is used. And what is the word? What is the, who's the Holy Spirit? He is the comforter. It is the same word they use as for comforter. Here, the parakletos. He is the paraclete. Here, the word is parakletos, or uh, parakleto. One who is a parakleto. Para, meaning alongside of, kleto, one who calls, or one who calls to stand next to somebody. As we talked about having an advocate, of having a lawyer. When you're in trouble, you call somebody who cares, and you call somebody who knows something about you, and who's willing to stand next to you. That is what the work of the Holy Spirit does. This is what... Uh, he is saying here that God is a God who's willing to come and stand with us and be with us. He is the God of all comfort. He comes with what? Fort. Power. With strength. So notice as we read this, he says, who comforts us in all of our affliction. That's the word, again used more times here in such a small little paragraph than any place else, is that word that sounds like you are, you have a lisp, is flipsis. That word of being crushed, that word of being beyond any kind of expectation that you and I feel that you can't bear any more weight, that you can't stand any more pressure, that you can't stand what's going on, that you think your very being is going to crush, that's what this word means. Now, wow, if this was happening to Paul, how could he be an apostle? <laughs> Evidently, he did not have your better life now on his shelf. How on earth, how on earth can you ever believe such garbage? If this is the case, then what about the, all the martyrs around the world? Aren't, isn't this the, the, how, many, how much blood is being shed for the faith now? The blood of the martyrs? How many people are dying for the faith right now? Have they not read the book? That you're not supposed to have this happen in your life? That if you're a saint then none of this stuff should happen to you. You should be able to have anything you want. You're a king's kid. You should get everything you want because you deserve it. And you remember when I talked to you, this over-realized eschatology. They talk about what's going to happen in eternity and they want a little piece of it now, so they bring it in now. They don't want a little piece of it. They want all of it now. So how does this, I mean, this health and wealth gospel, this book kicks it right on its can. It takes its leg right out from underneath it. There's no room for health and wealth in here. Paul's is saying to them, expect it. It happens to us. Expect it in your life. Now what's different about 1 Peter, and we looked at suffering versus this kind of suffering, is 1 Peter's suffering is about suffering for being persecuted for being Christians. This is a, 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 a suffering that can mean any kind of affliction. And he is saying to them, we suffered all kinds of afflictions. Why? We do it because of our faith. We do it because of life coming our way. We do it because God brings it in our life. 
And notice what he says here. It is God who comforts. He's praising God. Notice how many times by the will of God in verse 1. By the church of God in verse 1. By grace and peace to you from God in verse 2. Blessed be God, our Father, the God of all comfort. Who is he trying to talk about here? He's talking about God. Why? Because it's not your endurance. It's not your strength. It's not even the focus of testing of your faith that he's concerned about. He is saying it's ultimately about God who brings you through this. It's about God who gives you the faith to make it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, all of our affliction, all of our affliction. There's nothing that gets through God's fingers, folks. Nothing that gets through God's fingers that God does not want to let go through his fingers. So he can comfort us with that affliction because he's allowed it to take place in our life. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Notice it's not about persecution of the faith, but in any affliction with the comfort that we have received and have been comforted by who? By God. It's not my comfort. It's not Paul's comfort. Paul's saying it's not for me. It's from God. I want to give you the comfort that God has given me. That's what he's saying. Notice the word here. When we're saying we in this section, in some place, you've got to understand the context that he is using the apostolic we here. Okay? He is talking here about the we, the apostles. Though it does relate to us, because he's going to bring it into it, but he is talking about this. He is saying that as the revelation comes through the apostles, so is that very supernatural comfort coming through the apostles back to us. Because notice, he doesn't say, and I receive comfort from you. You can't read that anywhere. He never says, I give you, you give me comfort. We don't, it's, it's a one-way, it's a one-way street. Now, he is comforted by the fact, by things that the saints are doing. But the fact is, is that this comfort comes from them. It's revelatory. It's supernatural. It comes because these men are apostles. And he says, for we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. He's talking to the saints as an apostle and as apostles. It is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, if you, which you experience when you patiently endure the same kind of sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, we also share in our comfort. It's not, there, it's not our comfort for them. It's the comfort. Who gave them the comfort? It's God. We share in God's comfort. He is saying that they are the very instruments of God's comfort as well, because it comes from Christ. These men, as Paul writes, I'm sorry, as Luke writes in the book of Acts, Paul to about Paul and Paul from goes from Saul to Paul in chapter 9. He is saying, I am going to begin to show him what it means to suffer for the church, to suffer for me. This is why he is saying these kinds of suffering, it's unique. It's unique. The apostles suffered many kinds of different kinds of suffering for the faith. Not everybody is going to suffer like Paul did. And, I, and this book is not telling you that if he ain't suffering, go out and find it. 
It's not saying that you're not a great, you're not a really good Christian if you're not suffering. He's not. They're not saying that. I don't want anybody to go looking for trouble, looking for trouble, and looking for suffering. He is saying that the apostles have a certain kind of suffering, and he's going to talk about this. He's going to say, "Oh my goodness, I'm going out of my mind. Look at me. I'm boasting about my suffering. Who's, who boasts about their suffering?" Why? He can. And that's what he's using against these super apostles because he is using the suffering to show that he is like Christ in suffering. Not in the same way, but Christ is using him to suffer for the church. Not in a salvific and a redemptory way, but in a way that is passing on God's love and God's comfort. So that's what he's talking about here. And he says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings. Why? Because there's life goes on and stuff happens. For the faith, a regular life. And he says, you too will share in our comfort. Why? Because we all have God as our God, as our Father of all comfort, through Christ. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of this flipsis we experienced in Asia. We don't know what it was. For we were so utterly burdened that beyond our strength, that we despaired life itself. Some of you may have experienced that. Some of you have never experienced that. But Paul did. This is why they're saying, why would a man of God who's an apostle feel this way about life? How could he do this? He doesn't have the answer. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the formula. He doesn't have the right book. He says, for indeed, verse 9, we felt that we had received the, the sentence of death. He heard in his head, you got no way out, Paul. You're going to die. You're going to die. You remember what Jonah felt like in the belly of that great fish? He felt the seaweed coming. He kept on, he was tumbling. He thought that he was caught in this current. He felt no bottom to be able to push off the bottom of the ocean. He had no way, nothing to grab onto. He just kept on getting wrapped. He couldn't breathe. He said the water was going up over his face, over his nose. He was suffocating. He thought he was good as dead. Paul says, that's exactly how I felt. He felt that he was just, he was ready to death. He was going to die. The sentence was death. There was no other verdict. But that was made, that was to make us, notice the in order that, the reason why, the purpose clause here, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God. God uses these tests. God uses these afflictions. God uses these situations not to be mean and not to punish us. We've read that he will use them to discipline us, but he will also want to test our faith to make sure that you and I understand that we are not great. That we don't have all the answers. That we, have, we aren't totally sanctified. That we are not uh, uh, perfect people who don't sin anymore. He wants us to realize that there's a porousness to our faith. He wants us to understand that there's a genuineness to our faith, as they did with the potters, as they did with the, with the, with the ware that they sold in the stores back then, is that they would cover up the cracks with wax and then cover over top of them. And so they would look like they were good. And then when they used them, they'd be filling, they'd be pour out with holes because they were not the real deal. They were not genuine. He is saying, I am giving you these. God is giving you these, excuse me. God gives them to us to test our faith and that we ultimately rely upon God. 
who raises the dead. You see, he goes back. What is the reason why Paul can say all of this? He goes back to Easter. It goes back to the resurrection. That's the basis for having his assurance, not only in his life, but his assurance in the life of the saints, if they're truly saints, and he knows there are them there, and the saints that are here. You and I are going through these trials, not to be revelatory, but to show the world that we believe in a God who loves us and cares for us and is going, and we believe that if he does not deliver us now, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if he doesn't deliver us now, we're not bowing down. We know that later on he'll take care of us. We know that later on, ultimately because of the cross and because of the resurrection, as he says there, because God raised Christ from the dead, that's a sure sign that he loves us. It's a sure sign that if death has been, the, the, the sting of death has been taken away, there's nothing else to worry about. And so he says here, he goes, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. And folks, realize, it's not this kind of hope. There's none of this hope. In, and for Christians, it's never this kind of hope. It's the word el peace, and that means secured hope, convicting hope. Hope that you know that you can take it to the bank. Nothing is going to change that kind of hope. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8, 28 and on. Who's going to divide us? Who's going to take away us? Who's, what's ever going to, as anybody, can anything in the face of the earth do that? And Paul says, no. I mean, that's why he writes Romans 8 for us. He realizes that nothing, even though we go through this theodicy in our life, is God just by doing this? Is God just by allowing this to happen to this person? What are you doing, God? What's going on? He says, we can cry that cry, but with assurance knowing that we don't know, but Lord, you do. You know, you're not a God in process. You're not a God that's just fickled and waiting to find out what the options were before you make a decision. He is saying here, he delivered us, and he will deliver us, because we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, ultimately at the cross, ultimately at the death of, of, a, of a saint, ultimately at the end of, the, of our life, when we see the Lord we have nothing to fear. So then he says, how do we participate in that? He says, we also must help, uh, you must help us by prayer. Why? Because prayer shows that we do not depend upon ourselves. We aren't sitting around with a project plan figuring out what dates we need to put down and what tasks need to be done to get this accomplished because God's telling us, as Paul says, there is no project plan. There is no date. There is no checklist of things you can do. If you come to the point in your life where the sentence of death is, what other option do you have? None. Now, we can be frightened, and you and I can be scared, and I can have anxiety, and I can be nervous, and I can sweat, and I can tear, and I can cry, and I can go through all these gyrations. But folks, I do believe this. In spite of how sometimes I show my faith, I do believe this stuff. That's where he is saying, that's how we now can comfort one another. Because we have received that comfort from God. And by you and me being together, we can share the comfort that God has given us by being through trials. Now, some of us may be through different trials, and we talked about this, we can't relate to. But just by knowing that somebody is suffering, we can come alongside of them and just be present as God is. Which makes a big difference. 
We can pray. And prayer means that, Lord, you don't change. Can you pray to a God who changes? Are you listening? Are you on a party line somewhere? Do you have time for me? Do you understand what's going on in my life? Imagine having a God that just doesn't really know yet what to do. Why pray? So God has to be completely sovereign. He has to be a God of total providence. He says, you must also must pray us, help us to by prayer so that many will give thanks to our, on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. When people know that we're praying for one another, that's how we spread out the truth. When we know people that we're people of prayer, when we gather together for prayer, when people see that we pray, it is not coaxing God, it is not twisting God's arm, it is not doing any of that stuff. It is us relying upon God. That's where Tertullian, who came up with the saying, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church, he became a believer and was converted because he saw how the saints were being killed and persecuted and what joy they had while it was happening. He says, who are these people? What kind of people are these? These people aren't normal. Hopefully people will gossip about us. Now, they'll gossip because sometimes we do do stupid things and we do make mistakes. And churches do act foolish and stupid and do do things because we're sinners. But ultimately, our answer and our hope is not in who we are or not our ability to run anything. It's our ability that God is sovereign over this and God is sovereign over our life. And so we are not told to fret. We are told to pray. We are told to have hope. We are told, like Paul, that God is a God of all comfort. We've been given this great deal by Jesus. By the very value of his resurrection, by the very depth of his love for us. This is why Paul is writing this. Paul is telling these super apostles that it is a sign that God loves you, that you pray to him, and that you're in weakness, and your weakness does not deter, even though the society tells you that this God can't love you if he's put you through this. If he's taken this away in your life, or he's taken that person away in your life, or he's allowed this terrible thing to take place in your life, all those are real, and all those are real to God. But it's how we, how we respond to those. We cry, we are surprised, we are saddened, we can show all those emotions, but ultimately when somebody asks us, we're saying, I don't know, I'm not God, he's in control. I have to believe that he understands totally what he's doing. And that's what Paul's saying. That's how he wants people to understand it. Because he says by this, then God, he says, on the behalf, I will give, and everybody gives thanks. When we all pray, we all have the opportunity to pray, and then when God answers our prayer, we all give thanks. We all give praise to God, because that's what worship is. So, that's the first few verses of 2 Corinthians. Hopefully you've been given a picture, maybe more than you want, but given a picture and a footprint, and an outline of where we're going with this, what or why Paul says these things, why he talks the way he does, why he is, he's not now defending the faith, he is given a defense or an apology for him being an, an apostle. 
He's, but while he's doing it, he's proclaiming the gospel and trying to show love to these people. He is going to show restraint. He is going to show love. He's going to say, though, there is going to come a time when you need to let me know what's going on. Because obedience is not what God sees to make us accepted, but it is an expected part of our life that we are obedient to God's word. And if we see, as he did in 1 Corinthians, if you see people that are not obedient, something needs to be done if you call yourself a believer. That's why the church discipline is so important. That's why church membership is so important. Because people who don't go that route say that they don't want to be accountable. They don't need to be attached. And I'm telling you that you can't find that mentality anywhere in the Bible whatsoever. So, let's pray to the Lord that he'll guide our steps and our studies and my study for you guys as we present this gospel uh, to, to Hope Church each week. Let's pray. Father, I do come to you today. You know totally that this, this servant was, is unable and uh, has no strength and wisdom of his own to be able to present this in a way... Uh, that would do the justice that it deserves. But Lord, I trust in the work of the Holy Spirit as I speak. And as we point out this word, I have total conviction and truth and belief in your word. And in the Holy Spirit who inspired the writer to do this and to write this, that these are the very words of God. So with all conviction and with all assurity and with much confidence, I can say these things. I cannot tell you that I have lived them out fully, but I understand that these are what I am to live by and what others are to live by. And Lord, I pray that you help me as a pastor of this church, as a teacher of this church, that Lord, we understand that for pastors there sometimes there are different kinds of suffering that are unique to that role. And I pray that the people in the congregation understand that that is the kind of role that you have called these men to do and to be in prayer for them and to understand the warfare that goes on. So, Father, that when it comes time for issues and when it comes time to settle uh, strife and when it comes time to disagreements, that, Father, when we engage in that kind of discussion and that kind of exercise, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. And that, Father, that you would give us the wherewithal to understand that when we hold up that shield, that we do extinguish those fiery darts and not deflect them off to someone else. Father, I pray that as not only for pastors, but also for the members who are here today, for people who call themselves followers of Christ, that we would come to understand, even as we sin, even as we act as practical atheists, that we have deep down in our very soul the understanding that you died for us, Jesus. We understand that, that, you, that you find no happiness in anyone else but your son. And you have told us to follow him. And you have changed our hearts to follow him. And so, Lord, I pray that these words would be words that we desire to live by and to embrace. So, Lord, increase the faith of your church, not because of its trials, but because of the God they profess. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.